Hello, and welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. We're so glad to have you. On this episode, we're going to finish our conversation with Dr. Mike Campbell on the issues surrounding mass incarceration. If you would like to know more about the work we do at Brew Theology, you can find us at www.brewtheology.org, on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology, and on Twitter at Brew underscore Theology. We're so glad you could join us, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks, Mike. Uh, next up would be Owen. Uh, so, Owen, if you want to pop on. Howdy, y'all. Michael, do you believe that the rise of the Internet and the related ease of access to varied niche communities uh, and entertainment has been a significant factor in overall crime drop over the last, you know, 25 years or so that the Internet has been burgeoning? You know, I, uh, I, I proposed this thesis to a colleague and I said, what about the fact that young men who are usually the troublemakers, mm-hmm. uh, I, I was certainly one, uh, what about the fact that young men can like watch ESPN starting in about 1995 and that the video games got really good, right, around 1995? Like, does that maybe explain the fact that people, you know, were able to distract themselves and do something else? Um, and he crunched some numbers that showed that people who are more likely to spend their time online and gaming were actually just also still more likely to be involved in criminal activity. But it's not conclusive. And so it's something that, you know, I thought of uh, as well. It seemed like a logical thing that there's new distractions and new groups that you can connect yourself with. Mm. Uh, the problem is, is that a lot of those subgroups are... Uh, let's say they're, they're not all engaged in the most upstanding activities when they do get together physically, right? So um, it kind of flows both ways. I'm pretty sure that's what a lot of the research shows is that, uh, you know, people who do bad things in person tend to also get involved in some bad things online. Uh, it's not surprising, right? So I, I think that it's kind of a, you know, more of the same in a different place, unfortunately, than uh, an alternative. Okay, fair enough. Great. Um, Michael, I believe that uh, your question was next. Yes, uh, thank you, Michael. I'm wondering about the concept of restorative justice and if that's becoming a more common practice, that is where the victim and the perpetrator get together, the the perpetrator or the uh, victim may listen, or I'm sorry, the perpetrator would listen to the victim and maybe also the victim might learn something about the perpetrator and what has happened in that person's life. So those programs are also very jurisdiction specific, right? So courts can choose to do them or not. Um, They certainly gained a lot of momentum over the last 10 years. There's a a scholar named John Braithwaite out of Australia who essentially was the person who theoretically kind of said, this could be an alternative that still has elements of the punitive what he called reintegrated shaming, right? That you bring the person out, you show to this person that they are, you know, that they have done something wrong, they're publicly shamed, but at the same time, you also, at the end of their punishment, you reincorporate them and have some sort of official or formal reincorporation of this person back into society where they meet the, per- the, the, the victim of the crime. They admit what they did was wrong. Uh, and the victim explains to them what they did, you know, the consequences of their actions and they work to kind of resolve these things. It's very spotty where this has happened. Again, it's, uh, but, it, but it's definitely been more common. I don't know that the research shows, uh, the, the research is a mixed bag. 
um, because sometimes these things are done with offenders that are, um, you know, kind of the mid or lower level tier offenders where the chances of rehabilitation are probably already higher. Um, but it's certainly something that most criminologists view as a, as a positive alternative to what has essentially been the dominant ethos, which has been throw away the key um, and, and hit it to them as hard as you can. Um, I also know that they're doing some of this in the courts in California for uh, juvenile offenders, where they're actually letting juveniles be jurists, uh, serve and uh, do role-playing in court processes, where uh, an offender, someone who actually pleaded guilty to a, an offense as a juvenile, uh, goes on a trial by their peers and is like engaged with the jury who gets to ask questions and this and that. Some of the research suggests that that just makes people that committed offenses angrier and it's more social marginalizing, socially marginalizing. It's a mixed bag, but it's definitely become more common. Um, and, you know, a lot of that really has to do with the, the offense, the offender and the victims. They all have to really be willing and able to engage. Yeah. yeah. Just to follow up, you, you brought up the, uh, you mentioned shame, bring out shame. But I wonder, isn't part of the theory to bring up empathy and compassion? Or, I mean, in other words, if the perpetrator of the crime were to hear the suffering of the victim, that it might elicit something of, oh, my God, you know, I did this. I affected this person this way. And vice versa, that, that the, the, uh, the victim could learn something about the life, perhaps, uh, of, of the perpetrator of the crime. Yeah, you know, that makes me think of, uh, and I should have listed this on the resources when Ryan asked me to, to list some. There's a, a great or called an organization called the Marshall Project, and they have these very brief five-minute testimonials from people who uh, operate across all different levels of uh, the criminal justice system, including people who are victims of crimes and people who committed serious crimes. And one of the most common themes among people who committed a serious crime where someone was killed or someone was raped or whatever is, you know, after spending 10 years in prison, these people become much more conscious. You know, not everyone, of course, but many people, yeah, become, yeah. they grow up. You know, many of these, I mean, keep in mind that your average offender, like offending peaks at, at 17 to 18 years old. And by the time you get to 25, most people age out of crime and stop committing these. And so when you think about, about that, Many of these people, by the time they've served half of their prison sentence, when we're talking about putting somebody in prison for, you know, for aggravated assault for 10 or 15 years, um, those people have had, you know, have grown up, essentially, and have come to be able to reflect on and think about what their actions meant and how it affected other people. Uh, you know, the Supreme Court ruled that you can't sentence juvenile offenders to life anymore because the psychological research shows that until human beings are 24 years old, they're just not capable of the kind of empathy um, that it takes to understand the consequences of their actions. Um, and it's about after the age of 24 where that starts to settle in. I don't know. I think I started to have more sense when I was 24. I, 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 you know, that, that research <laughs> makes some sense to me. I certainly am uh, not saying that you know, no one does anything bad after that. Of course, of course not. But the Supreme Court used a lot of psychological research that was pretty conclusive in showing that, you know, especially for offenders who are 17, 18, 19, the people who commit a majority of the serious violent offenses, that's the case. And I think that, you know, as they get incarcerated, they're more likely to engage in these programs. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Do you see a lot of people like Merle Haggard 
who came out of prison and became successful. He's a country singer with a very sure. Yeah. The bottom line is a lot of people who committed crimes and spent some time in and out of correctional systems and facilities are have a good chance at going on to do this, but it's more the it's more the exception than the rule. Uh, it happens, uh, but opportunity structures, you know, for people who uh, the very thing that sent that got them sent to prison for a longer period of time are the very same things that are that are going to limit their ability to stay out. And even for people, you know, there there are many people who have been wrongfully convicted and served long periods in prison. And even for those people who have spent, say, 10, 15, or 20 years in prison that were wrongfully convicted and get, you know, say, a million-dollar settlements, which is rare, but sometimes it happens, even those people often live tough lives when they get out of prison because their health is so bad. It's just such a bad living environment for people. They age faster. Their health deteriorates. Psychological consequences in prison are pretty serious. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, it happens, but I think the... You know, a lot of the research shows that the longer you're in there, the lower your odds of coming out and, and living, you know, living what we might consider, you know, as a, you know, kind of life that most folks would want to live. What is the best way to bring to light the problem of the for-profit prisons and how do we end that practice? Well, you know, there's a lot of momentum for that right now. Um, and, you know, Colorado seems to be on the cusp of, of getting rid of the, the for-profit prisons, it'll be hard to do because there will always be states that'll have it. And there's always going to be times when state prison populations ebb and flow. And you can't just build and have a prison up and running in a minute, just like you can't have a hospital to treat COVID up and running in a minute. And so what private prisons do essentially is sell the convenience of we can be there for cheaper and faster and we were the professionals. The research shows that, you know, they're, they're essentially just doing it the cheapest possible way you can possibly do it. And that has a lot of negative consequences for, for the inmates and in the long run for the states. Because another thing is that when you suck out the, the, prime, the, the, the kind of cream of the crop inmates, the ones least likely to cause problems, when you go to a state facility, you go to a medium security prison, and you take everyone out of there who in most countries wouldn't even be in prison at all, they'd be... They'd face a fine for their white-collar crime or for dealing drugs but not even having a gun or whatever. You take all those inmates out, then what you leave behind is a much more – is a group of people that are much more likely to have mental problems, uh, people that are more likely to have health problems, and people who are much more likely to be violent. And so it creates like a hardening even within the state prison systems. And so one source of opposition to these is actually corrections officials themselves – uh, in California, the prison guard union fights private prisons left and right to keep them out because what that means is fewer overtime hours for a prison guard and uh, fewer benefits and fewer employees, uh, fewer union members. Um, it's not an easy thing to fight, but it all starts with state politics. It all starts with talking to your state legislator and saying, you know, this is something that our state should not be doing, at least on a local level. And, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these politics really are local. You know, there are things that you can do in your local elections. These are people you can meet and talk to and figure out how they feel and what they think about prosecuting people, about responding to offenders. Um, And, you know, a lot of these states, I took my class to meet uh, with uh, Robert Rodriguez, who is our local uh, state legislator the other day in my law, politics, and criminal justice reform class. And, you know, these people are accessible. Like, you can come to them, you can contact them, and when you get in their ear, it's clear they listen. 
So uh, I would say that starting locally and politically is a good, a good route. Awesome. Thanks. Um, we have about three more, three to four more questions that have come in and two of them are pretty similar. So um, Phil, if you want to jump on and ask your question and, um, and I know it, it relates closely to, I believe Hank's question as well. So Phil, go ahead. Yeah, sure. No, I noticed that as well. Um, Mike, I was just wondering, are there any countries that you mentioned France earlier, are there any other countries that you think are doing this well? And if so, what are they doing and how do we know that they're doing it well? When you say doing it, do you mean criminal justice in general or do you mean imprisoning people? Uh, a bit of both actually, but the, the prison system in, in general, in your so, view, now I know there are multiple views, but in your view, Mm-hmm. Look to. So really the kind of shining star of national prison systems is the Scandinavian countries. The Scandinavian countries are, uh, you know, the shining star in so many political ways uh, because they, they don't have a lot of the problems that we have in the United States, so they can do that. But Germany, for example, uh, Germany is a much larger co- country that has some similar problems to us in some ways. And in Germany, I tried to do a research project where I tried to see how long they sentence people for homicide, just the, the, the most serious crime. I thought, well, I can't, I can't compare. It's all apples to oranges when you look at criminal codes in Germany versus the United States. But I thought, well, homicide, like that's the same everywhere, right? Like you killed someone. And I came to find out that I was even wrong about that, which is one of the fun things about being an academic. You find out how many things you're wrong about. And I, I figured out that actually most homicide offenders in Germany are treated as people who are essentially um, mentally ill, and that to kill someone, you must be mentally ill, essentially, and that they um, uh, are then usually serving an average between five and seven years in prison, where they receive intensive programming and care while they're there. Uh, they wear their own clothes. Uh, they have rooms that are more like apartments, so they're treated more like normal people. And I think that part of what goes on here is that you use prison only for the most severe offenders. And while they're in prison, you do, you do find ways to do positive and constructive things. You don't let that prison look like Shawshank. Um, and you find ways then to bring, you know, to, to, when, when those people come out, to bring them and reincorporate them into society in positive ways. We don't do any, any of those things here. Um, so Germany, much of Northern Europe does a pretty good job. The United Kingdom's kind of big brother is pretty similar. Uh, they, they still do a lot of, a lot of bad stuff. Um, they're not, not necessarily a good model. And, you know, most countries have a dark underbelly. Italy, Greece, France, a lot of those countries still have dark, dirty, dangerous prisons that are very unhealthy. Uh, they're dealing with some of the same things with inmates that we're dealing with. Um, but the bottom line is being humane and treating people like human beings. Uh, and the bottom line is our system is very dehuman- dehumanizing. Um, and that, that has a lot of consequences. And um, so I would say... Those Scandinavian countries are a model, Denmark uh, as well, Germany. Um, they, they've done a much better job than we have. Okay, thank you. Thanks, uh, Eric and Kelly. Um, I believe you, your question uh, is next up here. All right, well, that was mine. So being a, uh, a fan of Freakonomics and the way those guys have actually turned the, you know, the common narrative on its ear, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on the uh, Donahue Levitt hypothesis and then the resurgence of the conversation following recent, you know, state decisions and some pending Supreme Court decisions. 
You mean regarding abortion being the cause for the reduction Correct. in crime? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those of you who aren't aware of, of this hypothesis, the idea is that uh, crime rates began to drop in 1995 because that was about the, the time when people who would have been in the wake of Roe v. Wade, those are pregnancies where mothers who didn't want to have children would have had children and that those children would have entered the high crime age categories uh, in around 1995. Um, Some very conservative criminologists made some very bold predictions, which I'm not into big, bold predictions. I'm a historian, not a uh, ball reader. But all of us are forced sometimes to try to guess and and say what we think. And some of these people said that we were on the edge of of an age of super predators, where crime was super high in 95, but we are about to face this wave of mindless killers that were going to rove the urban streets and uh, murder people for no good reason. And some people have argued that the real reason that those people were so wrong and that that never happened was that around 1995, people who wanted abortions could get them. I personally believe that uh, there is no question that unwanted pregnancies among mothers who are very disadvantaged, who are often very young, who have often been sexually abused and neglected themselves, we know we want to set up the prototype of essentially the conditions that you can have that lead someone to a life of crime. Those are the sorts of conditions that you set up. Providing those people with access to control when they do and don't have a child is a very good idea. Um, in, my, in my opinion and most criminologists' opinions, um, those people are at the highest risk to have a child who's in turn going to be physically abused, sexually abused, neglected, grow up in uh, unstable homes, and all of those risk factors then don't make it certain, but they certainly increase the likelihood over thousands of people that you're going to have more serious offenders. The truth of the matter is uh, their hypotheses and a lot of their numbers, they throw a lot of numbers they like together, and sometimes they omit the ones they don't. Um, Their hypotheses don't always include um, some of the things that criminologists have already worked out. Um, And some of the things that they say don't work in other time periods when things, for example, start to go back up, they should have been going back down. So there, you know, there are ways that their models are questionable uh, in terms of what a criminologist would include. But I think that from a public policy perspective, I think that what they're arguing for uh, makes perfect sense, whether you believe in Freakonomics or whether you just believe in good public policy forcing poor, single, young mothers who've been subject to abuse to have children uh, is a really, it's a, it, it does not lead to good outcomes. Especially when you don't provide services for them to raise their and children. And in a world, so also, exactly. So if you also think about the political developments in, in U.S. history, it's around the time of Roe v. Wade. So I, I, one counter argument to Freakonomics or something that may exacerbate what they argued is that, you know, it was beginning in the mid-1970s that social services, which were already relatively meager in the United States compared to other countries, began to be stripped gradually over the 70s as we were dealing with stagflation and the oil crisis in 1974. But when you get to the Reagan administration in the 1980s and you're talking about the economic stagnation that was going on and the massive cuts to government support for social programs, the reality of it is it's, it's a surprise there wasn't more crime. Uh, the reality of it is that poor families, you know, one thing criminologists 
I can sit here and come up with a model of all those factors that I just gave you. And I can say, now let's throw poverty in there and then let's strip away all these social programs. And I wouldn't predict enough crime. There, there should be more. I would be asking myself, why isn't there more crime? Because the reality of it is when we go to and, and, and analyze the poorest neighborhoods that have the highest levels of all of these risk factors that we're talking about, the reality of it is about half of all people that grow up in those horrible conditions go on to be just fine people who have jobs and have families and live respectable lives. And the question is, how do they do it, right? If all these things that us criminologists and sociologists know, how do they do it? And the answer we know is partly family. If you have good family there to support you and help you and get you through, this makes a big difference. Uh, the problem is it's hard to have good family when everybody's poor, uh, when many people are, are getting subjected to violence and whatnot. Those are insulating factors that we talk about. And the reality of it is having good family and having people with resources can insulate you from those other factors, even in the hardest of conditions. Thank you, Mike. Um, Ray, I believe you're up next. Hey, what's up, everybody? Good to see you, Rob. And uh, thanks, Michael, for taking the time to, to meet with us, join us here. Uh, it's been very interesting. Um, I don't have a question. I think maybe there's an implied question in it, but um, my point was about statistics, and I'm sure you know this uh, as, as educated as you are, that statistics in and of themselves, you cannot make a conclusion or don't lead to anything conclusive, right, based on statistics alone. So it depends on the, the data um, used and, and how it was used to, to come up with calculation for that statistic. So one example is, and this, this is not, uh, you know, I don't feel strongly one way or the other about, you know, the sides of this argument, but so if, if we decide if, if policy, if we take a look at a statistic that says after this policy was made and enforced, the crime rate neither rose nor fell, right? Or if you say the crime rate rose, that would indicate that the policy was ineffective or if the crime rate fell, maybe the policy is effective and a good idea. But I think it really depends on what you're, you know, what period of time you're looking at. And there are so many factors involved with um, that go into a statistic that really, I, I just wanted to point out that we all need to be very cognizant of what those factors are. Um, and, uh, and to always understand, like you had mentioned already, these statistics are not conclusive in and of themselves. Uh, and finally, I just want to say that I noticed you just went from using measly to meager. So that's very generous of you. <laughs> that's it for me, man. Yeah, no, um, there's no question, you know, it's hard enough to, um, grapple with these sorts of statistical analyses when you can, when you can study people in control and controlled environments, right? When you can put people in a room, control the environment and subject people to the same exact conditions for an experiment in psychology. It's a very different thing when you're doing what criminologists try to do, where we're trying to understand, and especially when we're focused on the most serious types of offenses, which are fortunately very rare. Uh, it's a much different thing when you're trying to understand the complexity of all the things that come to bear on what makes, what explains you know, your, your dependent variable. Um, and I think that, you know, some criminologists and some economists are a little flippant with that. Um, and I think others are very critical of it and very conscious of it. And 
so I know for myself, I try to think, you know, always think through the complexity and the layers of these things and that every statistic has to be understood in context um, and, and through an informed lens. And that's, that's what I try to do with my work. Um, not always perfectly. You know, things are, things are getting murky no matter what you do. But things like homicide rates are uh, dead bodies. You know, those are, that's a statistic I feel com- pretty comfortable with. Though it's been changed by better ambulance care and better medical care and by more lethal firearms. That's why I also like studying incarceration because people in cages, uh, we can count how many bodies we're willing to put in a cage and keep there for a long period of time. Those are pretty reliable statistics that we can look at over time and, and trust that they're accurate. But it's always wise to be cautious and think carefully about, you know, what kind of data goes in because uh, junk data goes in and junk results come out. And that's uh, one thing to always keep in mind. Thank you, Michael. Mm-hmm. Hank, I didn't know if, uh, did, did you feel like we got that one covered on the progressive jail systems around the country or around the world? about 99% covered that unless you want to say some more but um you know how do the scandinavian countries do it well it's partly a political culture of course you know that uh something like that is just a part of a broader state regime that is more centered on providing services and support for people than we've ever had in this country but again there there are places and ways that that local governments are doing more a lot of those programs, though, are, again, small and in the margins. Uh, but there, there are more efforts to think more about how can a, you know, is there a way that a jail can become a place where someone who needs it can get help? And, you know, my wife was running an evaluation program in St. Louis where the goal was to stop this cycle of people being released from St. Louis's jails, going out, getting in low-level trouble again, and then getting reincarcerated into the jail by connecting these people to a healthcare provider before they left, get them a doctor to where they could get their medication and then get them housing where you could get them a doctor, you would get them housing and you'd have a social worker check on them and make sure they were getting and taking their medication and that they had the basic things that they needed, basic amounts of food and whatnot. And a lot of the research shows that when you do those things, it works well. Uh, unfortunately, this, uh, the county of St. Louis didn't uh, apply to re-up the grant or continue funding it after the federal funding ran out and they stopped doing it. So kind of cheery, but kind of not. Mm-hmm. Good. Thank you, Mike. Um, next, I believe, was uh, Kirk. Kirk, if you want to hop on. Hi, Michael. Thank you for your time. Sure. Uh, one is what I, maybe I'm not hearing it, but I think I'm hearing it, is that anytime that you end up treating people more humanely, you end up with a better system. And part of that humanity that I see is that most of us have trauma in our life. Uh, And the trauma in our life creates the emotional disturbances a lot of times. We don't know how to deal with it, so we go into the fight and flight mode. And yet, when you end up with people who can acknowledge the trauma of their past, and be witnessed by the trauma, what you end up with is uh, some healing that occurs by humanity acknowledging our common trauma. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm curious if there's been focus or anybody's pushing that kind of possibility of reform in the prison system. So acknowledging the trauma that people have dealt with. Uh, well, 
a man named Brian Stevenson, um, who's testified before the Supreme Court, and he often represents uh, juveniles, many African Americans who in the South who have been charged with uh, for serious crimes. One thing that he likes to say that I think really resonates is that, you know, none of us should be defined by the worst thing we've ever done. And uh, that, you know, I think that that's a, an interesting way that I think that maybe speaks a bit to what you're saying, Kirk, because um, ultimately, you know, there, there has to be some acknowledgement that people do make terrible mistakes. Um, and especially many times we're talking about people in their youth here. Um, when we're talking about crime, we're talking about, you know, I think 50 to over 50% of all serious violent offenses occur or committed by people from the age of 17 to 24, 25 years old. And so part of what you're talking about here is thinking about and acknowledging that, you know, these people have committed serious offenses, but one of the things that used to matter more was mitigating circumstances that have these people also dealt with trauma in their lives. What is it that drove this person to commit this sort of offense or be in the situation where, you know, their drug addiction put them in a situation where they were very likely to commit something, uh, something that they otherwise might not do. And judges used to have more leeway to incorporate those things into their sentencing decisions, into the trials that, uh, you know, that would ultimately define what kind of sentence people would face. I think that requires kind of a larger kind of structural rethinking about how we approach punishment in general that's rooted more in kind of the morality of, you know, you know, whatever happened to who are we to judge, you know, <laughs> you know, there's, uh, th there's an element of that in my mind that says, you know, all of us have done things and it's important to acknowledge that other people have experienced things that we haven't. Um, that sort of reorientation would have to happen on a broader cultural scale to make its way into our criminal justice systems. And I sure hope that that's the way that we're bending toward. Uh, right now, it doesn't always feel that way. But in general, you know, throughout the, the much broader historical arc, you know, that has been the direction that, that things have gone, right? Things have uh, moved away from some of those things. So I still feel like it's possible, but I think that that's going to require a much broader movement that won't just be talking about criminal justice. We'll be talking about a lot of other issues too. Thank you. Great. Um, next, I believe. Yeah. Eric and Kelly, you want to jump in with that question you had? Okay. So this is from Kelly. Um, so I lived in California and they used to put everything on the ballot. It made me so frustrated. You have to have a, you know, I had to go law to school uh, and they had a lot of mandatory sentencing. So are you seeing that letting up where judges could, can make more judgment calls of themselves? Cause I think that that that's been a big contributor to some of the stuff is that they had like three stripes are out and or I know when I was living in California there was if it was a gang related crime there was extra severe sentencing are you seeing any of that coming up yeah so uh you know I feel your pain as somebody who got their PhD at UC Irvine and lived there for six years on those ballot propositions <laughs> like I'm getting my PhD in criminology law and society my friends are all asking me about these propositions and I'm like I don't have any idea what the hell this means. You know, this is ridiculous. Uh, you would have to wait for organizations to break them down and analyze them to have any idea what it really meant. And, you know, those sorts of political structures are very problematic because in the long run, they make it easier to pass a lot of bad bills and bad propositions and bad laws. 
the people who had wanted to really bump up prisons, especially the prison guard union, uh, right. victim right group, they, they were very successful with their propositions and their opposition to reform propositions, uh, but they, they're on a losing streak right now. So propositions have gone the other direction. They're giving judges much more discretion. Uh, they, uh, the state passed another proposition that uh, essentially mandates that the state defer people or divert people from prison uh, for very lower level offenses that they previously could send them to prison for. So the proposition can go both ways. And right now, uh, re- more reform-minded people have been very successful. Though the death penalty uh, ban failed, uh, which was, you know, uh, failed like I think 55% of voters voted to retain the death penalty uh, two years ago, which was a surprise to some. Yeah, um, yeah, but there have definitely been more efforts to give judges more flexibility. And what we find is, you know, that's not always the answer. Some judges are hard asses that, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're all behind some of these sentences. But much of the time, judges sit there and see the circumstances of cases and uh, are much more likely to consider the mitigating circumstances to consider, especially for first-time offenders or older first-time offenders, even for more serious crimes, someone who, say, drug trafficking, driving a truck that had drugs in it, who's 45 years old. So there, there have been moves to shake some of those shackles of sentencing laws that have put people in prison for those life-trashing sentences, even when it's, say, their first offense. Okay, so that was for California specifically. Are you seeing that in other states, too? Yeah, so... Um, yeah, and it's not always propositions, but do you, do you mean propositions specifically or do you mean legal changes generally? Generally. So generally speaking, actually, Heather and I just published a paper in uh, the Academic Journal of Punishment and Society looking at this very thing. Is our state legislatures like really rethinking all these things on a serious level? Or is, are these changes and reforms that I was talking about earlier, you know, are they the product of something else? And uh, a lot of state, le- state legislative activity is a mixed bag, but there, there are not a lot of them that are doing major restructuring of sentencing. What they are doing is that they're, they're tinkering with some of the rules in ways that won't politicize the changes that they make, but that everyone who's involved in the, law, the legal dynamics knows will give judges more flexibility to get away from those mandatory standards. So they're doing it, but it's not like they're standing up on the podium and saying, we have to do this because it's just, or we have to do this because that was wrong. They're doing it as quietly as possible. And, you know, so they're, they're, they're doing it, not everywhere, um, but there are people doing it. And it's partly because there's great political risk to taking that position because you may divert that person, your law might divert them and they might go and kill someone uh, now you're up for re-election, right? So this is this has always been the thing. The political risk with reform is always on people's minds, especially with parole. Parole, every time some parolee goes out and does something horrible, which eventually will happen and always has happened, uh, that becomes highly politicized. And most poli- most governors are quick to distance themselves and quick to put people on the parole board that are extremely cautious. So that's, that's another thing that's very common. So Terry and Fran, did you want to pop on with your question real quick? Yeah, sure. Uh, just kind of interesting uh, how we've been talking about statistics here. Probably the one that, that drives me crazy is that argument of more guns prevent crime. And, and each side makes their case with statistics, right? 
just kind of wanted to know what your idea was on that. I mean, uh, what drives you in this argument? Well, uh, all of the people making arguments in that realm are doing it under the assumptions and the pretext that's been established by the NRA and their supporters. So they have literally framed the whole debate about guns in many ways for many years now. And so it's very difficult to even talk about those things. We do know that in some of those cities that have had the highest levels of violence and increases in violence. So I talked about how violence declined so much from 95 to 2005. Uh, but there were many cities that had uh, some sharp increases over, over the course of the last five years. Uh, cities like St. Louis, Baltimore, Memphis, Milwaukee, um, those cities had some pretty serious and very real spikes in violent crime. And one of the, you know, we're still trying to understand things about those cities because those cities have high levels of segregation. We know that. And we know that's often related to higher levels of violence. We know that those cities have had economic, you know, shocks and challenges that matter. But one of the things that all those cities have is that they're, they are near to states that have very lax gun laws. And so when we try to understand how these things work, we didn't have the same uptick in violence in Los Angeles. Uh, and we didn't have it in Oakland because it's a long way to get a gun. I mean, it's not that far, I guess, Oakland to what, Tahoe. What is that? It's probably four hours. But, you know, there's the, the, the more proximity that you have to very cheap. Uh, and that's the other thing is that firearms have become very cheap. Um, I grew up on a farm in southern Indiana. Uh, my family always had guns. I got my first rifle at the age of like seven or eight years old. I guess I got my first BB gun at seven, my first rifle at nine. Um, guns were very common, but I lived on a farm where you used your gun to do a specific task and they were common. But now what's alarming is that guns, uh, whereas used to my NRA uh, member father, used to be very concerned about people from the city having guns. This used to be something he was very concerned about. To now that he thinks that, uh, why should there ever be restrictions on anybody having guns? You know, that's uh, everyone should be able to have one. Well, the tone has changed. Um, and my dad didn't come up with that on his own. Um, he reads the NRA's newsletter every month. Um, and so part of this is that when you have more weapons, these sorts of things that once would have ended in fights and maybe some serious and really crappy injuries, uh, those are things that now leave people dead, especially among young men. You know, your typical kind of scenario of a homicide is one young man affronts another young man often over a girl or in front of a bunch of buddies, that guy beats him up. He goes and gets his gun and comes back and kills him or his buddies. Um, if you don't have a gun and maybe you just had a bat, you know, maybe you would beat him up and look better in your eyes and have a weapon and get your revenge without us having a dead body on our hands and somebody who's going to a morgue. So uh, the, the notion that guns and everybody being armed is going to make things better uh, is, is kind of hard to buy from a criminological perspective, especially when you think from a day-to-day -day perspective of, you know, who hasn't gotten mad, who hasn't been threatened, uh, who hasn't felt depressed. So firearms aren't just about homicides, they're about suicides, you know, and the, the having a firearm in your home increases the odds of you successfully committing suicide astronomically. So those are, you know, the, the, the broader risks to a public safety include harm to your own self. And that includes getting your gun out and pointing at somebody because the buddy across the way could have one too and shoot you. So there's a lot of ways that pulling out your gun, actually legally, once you do that, you're, it's fair game to shoot you too if the person feels threatened. So guns, you know, 
even in the wild west remember you had to leave your guns at the edge of town like that's in old westerns and the songs like see the movie unforgiven you weren't allowed to take your guns to town like you still shouldn't be able to keep them on the farm thanks mike uh and you even connected back to one of our previous speakers from uh the last six months paul miskew um with your your uh the firearms in the home piece there ryan you're next Hey, Mike, you and I have had a, a couple talks about God and Jesus and theology and this and that. And this specific topic, I believe, is theological. I, I think it's spiritual. So it's Monday Thursday today. So for a lot of people who grew up in the Christian tradition, that's the night where, you know, Jesus is, um, he's taken away. And then he dies an unjust death by a system that is corrupt. So what do you think that message speaks to Christians today? I don't know if you've thought about that much. I thought about that quite a bit throughout my years in ministry and, and looking at the Gospels, but I'm curious from your background in criminology, and then when you look at the Gospels today, going back 2,000 years, what, what, is that, what does that do to you? Uh, what does that do to Christianity? What does that do for those who are trying to, to walk this way of Jesus? Because you grew up in the church, so you heard certain stories, but now you're, you're, you're hearing it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. No, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a constant tension that I deal with. So as Ryan notes, I, I, uh, I out attendanced every preacher in our Baptist church, uh, for a good 14 straight years. Uh, my parents made sure I never missed. I am now as much an historian as I am a criminologist. And I feel like a lot of that's rooted in a lot of what I learned in reading the Bible and studying the Bible and the lessons of the Bible. And, um, when I think of, one of the lessons of Jesus Christ, it's very difficult to reconcile that in today's world with a lot of, like from my lens, I have to deal with kind of the political movement of Christianity, which is one that supports these sorts of things, um, the injustice. And I actually have a paper coming out, uh, or that actually came out this past year about this very thing, that uh, the, if you want to look at the places that have the highest levels of incarceration, look at the places that have the highest levels of Christian fundamentalism, and that have the highest age disparities between whites and uh, young blacks. Older whites, young blacks, and high levels of Christian fundamentalism leads to higher rates of incarceration. But in terms of spiritually dealing with this, uh, I think it's part of, you know, I don't study this because my dad's in prison. No one in my family's been in prison. Um, I study this from just a straightforward sense of injustice. Um, I see this as an historical injustice. Um, the same way that I would view the sorts of injustices that I studied in the Bible. I don't understand how people who are Christian can be so fundamentally opposed to second chances and forgiveness uh, so often in their political stance about the way that we respond uh, to people in this country, especially when you acknowledge the first fact that I put up that, that is, I don't just use that for groups that are interested in theology, is that the consistent clientele of American prisons are always the nation's poorest people. That is the people who are always subjected to these processes. That fact should make us think about what, who, what we're doing and who we're doing it to. And I would say if you want to walk in some way and, 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 and embrace or think about what Jesus meant, uh, what Jesus could be, you know, how you can in any way emulate, it is embracing the conditions of the poor and acknowledging them and finding ways to seek your own forgiveness and your own humility and to embrace those people's humanity. Um, and at the end of the day, a big dose of that would put an end to a lot of, uh, a lot of the issues that now just dominate politics. 
uh, whether it be access to healthcare. I mean, how can we even be, how can that even be an issue when you're talking about children dying, about poor people being left to die? And incarceration here where, you know, I'm reading furiously. I, I get, I definitely took away some of the fury from the Bible that is definitely stuck in here uh, in terms of reading these articles and just being infuriated by the fact that they're sending these guards to go to these prisons and spread COVID to these prisoners that they're not that worried about. Or even if they are worried about that we've treated and that we've demeaned in terms of humanity for so long, these are things that I just don't think can stand. So at the end of the day, um, if this is going to be a decent nation, uh, you have to grapple with the worst things that you're doing. I think mean, all of us deal with that, right? Like, and I feel like as a nation, if, until we do that, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot of hope for. You know, you ask me for some hope. I do. I am hopeful. I do believe things will go the right way, um, but I do think it, it's going to require a deeper reckoning about justice. I think that starts from within. I think it does. I think acknowledging your own humanity acknowledging your own flaws, acknowledging the fact that maybe you did something one time and got away with it. You know, I think a lot of people have done those things. Uh, they don't acknowledge it. They did things that they don't, they're not proud of. Other people did them and, you know, um, now they're, it's cost them essentially a life trashing sentence. I hope that people can be more forgiving and, and treat other human beings like you would want to treat your brother, uh, like you'd want to treat your mother if she got in trouble. Yeah. Thanks. I, I'm with you a hundred percent, man. And when I look at Tomorrow is Good Friday for some people. I, I think that's the middle finger. <laughs> it really is. It's the middle finger to the empire that gets it wrong. As a historian, you look back, you go, shit, we got it wrong. So I, I think if we wake up to the middle finger, then uh, things will maybe get better. Uh, you put it more poetically than I did. Mike, uh, this, is, this has been awesome. Um, thank you for, for joining us. And um, um, you mentioned Brian Stevenson, his book, Just Mercy is uh, really uh, good, um, sort of, it was a great intro read for me as a, as a pretty lay observer to, um, to some of the, the, the serious problems in our country. So it was cool to, to hear the mention there. Any, any parting words, Mike, before we uh, break out into some groups? Uh, yeah, if, if you find yourself more interested in the topic and the issue and there's anything I can do feel free to contact me. My, my, I'm a professor in the sociology and criminology department at DU. Um, I live in the neighborhood and, um, you know, I can point you or try. I mean, I'm relatively new here, but I'm trying to develop some ties to point people in directions when there's something they want to do. So if you find yourself compelled or just curious or intellectually curious about what's going on, feel free to reach out to me and, uh, you know, I'll do whatever I can. I guess one question I might have as a, a takeaway, do you think the U.S. is any darker than the rest of the world, or do you think there's a ray of light here, or are we kind of muddling along like the rest of the world is? You know, that's a good question. My feelings on that are kind of mixed. I, I, I feel like like any group of people, any nation, I, you know, there, there are all these Scandinavian and these other nations. They've done various terrible things. I mean, Sweden, they got some far-right crazy Nazis there that are as bad as any people in the, in the world. Um, so, you know, there, there aren't really model, you know, perfect groups of people, and we aren't either. I, I guess that, that my hope would be that, you know, we would acknowledge, I think the first step to embracing your positive qualities is acknowledging the bad ones and saying, you know, here's this probably, you know, these were mistakes and, 
uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with admitting some mistakes. We all make them. Every nation makes them. Uh, but the U.S. just seems to, uh, you know, our memory, because our nation changes and has changed so fast throughout its, its very short history, it's just so quick that we just move on to the next thing that it's like, yes, hey, we had the Civil War, slavery's over, it's all good. Segregation, whatever. And then, you know, civil rights movement, hey, segregation's over, it's all good. And now mass incarceration. And it seems so quick to just kind of brush things under the rug. I guess that from my perspective, it would be, I wish that we could sometimes slow down and take a breath and acknowledge some of the things that have happened. Because then I think there are also some great qualities to this country. And, you know, we mentioned them earlier in terms of believing in that, there, you know, that there should be, uh, I, I mean, I, I had class earlier today and one of the students, she's an African-American woman and she's very critical uh, as she should be of the criminal justice system. Her brother has been subjected to these things. And she, I asked her to define we're studying Durkheim and he talks about the collective conscience of societies. And so I, my, I had them do a, we broke out into breakout groups and it works great. You'll, it'll, it'll work fine. And uh, we did that and we put them in groups where they had to talk about what is the collective conscience of the United States. And she was the one person, ironically, who said that she also believed that a belief in due process and fair treatment for everybody was a part of the collective conscience. And I think that that is a good place to start, right? I do believe that even racist Americans think that the system should treat everybody the same. I think that they just think that if it does, that black people will go to prison. And I, I know for a fact, from studying it, that it doesn't treat people the same. So there's a place to start right? There's a, there is some ground right there to start and say, what if we really did treat everybody the same? And I th- that's why I wanted to talk about bail, because I hope that that made some of your blood boil, because uh, it makes mine boil every time. If you're too poor to get out for shoplifting, you stay in jail for 170 days. If you're rich and you murder somebody, you can get out the next week. That's not right. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Brew Theology. We're so glad you could join us. If you'd like to know more about Brew Theology, you can find us at www.brewtheology.org, at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram, and at Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. If you'd like to support the work we do, we are on Patreon, where you can choose a monthly amount that works for you. Thank you so much for all your support, and we'll see you next time.